This production is brought to you by the University of Edinburgh. Um, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to this first in the series of cross-college seminars looking at Hume today. Um, we're exploring in this series of seminars some different aspects of Hume's work as part of the year-long IASH celebrations of the 300-year anniversary of Hume's birth. And you'll see in the um, brochure that's on chairs the, the rest of the programme that's available the rest of this autumn. Um, all these seminars taking place each Friday lunchtime are aiming to engage an interdisciplinary audience in Hume's ideas and to consider the significance of those ideas for us today across a whole range of disciplines. I'm really delighted to welcome our first speaker in this series, Professor David Ferguson, who's going to be talking about Hume as religious skeptic. David's been Principal of New College and Professor of Divinity here since 2000. After beginning his career as a minister, he turned to academia in 1986, where he came here to be a lecturer um, in theology, and then went to Aberdeen as Professor of Systematic Theology for 10 years. Since then, he's returned to be um, Professor of Divinity here uh, since 2000. He served as President of the Society for the Study of Theology, and director and editorial board member of the Scottish Journal of Theology. He's also delivered the Cunningham Lectures in Edinburgh, the Bampton Lectures in Oxford, the Gifford Lectures in Glasgow, and the Warfield Lectures in Princeton, and is a fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh. And I think we're all very delighted to have David lead us in this seminar today on Hume's religious sceptic. grateful to colleagues for the invitation to speak and to uh, begin this lunchtime series. Um, what I propose to do is to speak for about 35 or 40 minutes and then uh, leave an opportunity for questions and discussion. Hume as religious sceptic. In a recent interview with the Archbishop of Canterbury, Frank Skinner, comedian, described atheism as the new cool <laughs> Any comic wanting to establish his or her credentials at the festival fringe, he said, now needs to announce their atheist leanings. It's become the default setting for sections of our society, even to the point that leading atheists such as Richard Dawkins have achieved celebrity status. In 18th century Edinburgh, however, things were very different. Hume's religious scepticism marked him out as the egregious figure of the Scottish Enlightenment, a movement that generally flourished on moderate Presbyterian soil. The biographical details will be familiar to many of you. The story of the woman who would rescue Hume in his inebriated state from the Norloch only on condition that first he recited the Lord's Prayer may be an embellished account, but it was circulated by Hume himself, and it illustrates the public perception of his work. Hume was attacked by the clergy on numerous occasions, some of it vicious and vitriolic, and it included those like the philosopher James Beattie, who should have known better. He was never offered an academic position here or in Glasgow, and he even endured an, an attempt to have him excommunicated from the Kirk, although commentators sometimes muse over whether Hume would indeed have welcomed this. James Boswell described him as the great infidel, 
an epithet that has stuck can be used over again in this tercentenary year. Hume wrote frequently on the subject of religion throughout much of his life. Although the material can readily be assembled into a single volume of writings, it covers a broad range of topics. Almost everything he had to say on religion remains of significance to its study today, whether in its philosophical, social, scientific, or historical mode. It's clear, moreover, that these writings on religion were of much personal importance to Hume himself. He was willing to suffer some public hostility on account of his views, even if at times he took steps to conceal the real extent of his scepticism. Shortly before his death, he added further material to the manuscripts of the dialogues concerning natural religion, while also making provision for their posthumous publication. There are, I think, broadly three lines of attack on religion in Hume. These are first the undermining of all arguments for the existence of God, especially the design argument. Second, the attack on the credibility of miraculous reports and therefore on revealed religion. And third, the natural explanation of actual religious belief and practice that simultaneously exposes its irrationality. In addition to these three main lines of attack, we find other more particular sallies against articles of faith, including providence and immortality, while much that is written about superstition and enthusiasm by Hume is leveled against historical expressions of religion and its bad effects. In dealing with the dialogues, we tend to teach our students that Philo is for the most part the mouthpiece for Hume. Philo's skepticism throughout the conversation largely representing that of the author. Nevertheless, Philo's own position is curiously ambiguous in the penultimate paragraph of the dialogues, where he appears to leave open the possibility of a residual theism. Is this merely a dramatic device, or is Hume making here a more serious philosophical move that prevents us from labeling him an outright atheist in today's sense of that term? Commentators have divided over this issue of interpretation. There are certainly features of these closing remarks that must be seen as a smokescreen, deliberately intended to conceal Hume's own resting position. The claim that he has destroyed reason in order to make room for faith and revelation must surely be read in this way. This was simply a tactical move that enabled Hume to advance a thoroughgoing skepticism in much of his writings without causing the outright offence and censure that would have inevitably ensued in much of 18th century Europe. The use of scepticism to support faith was a procedure that had been employed by different French writers, notably Montaigne and Pascal. But the same claim, the sceptical claim, could be used as a convenient means of disguising the real extent of one's doubts at a time when wholesale explicit criticism of religion would have had deleterious consequences. This is a strategy of Pierre Bale, some of the most explosive material in his writing being reserved for his footnotes. 
And something similar, I think, happens in Hume's natural history of religion, where the real attack on the religion of his own day is most apparent in footnotes and citations. It's also clear that Hume uses the same rhetorical strategy as Bale. He had no intention of developing a theology of revelation, as his essay on miracles demonstrates, but it does provide him with a smokescreen behind which he could rehearse his arguments against natural theology. Nevertheless, even allowing for this tactical move, some of Philo's remarks remain puzzling, especially when one considers these to have been late additions inserted shortly before Hume's death. Philo says near the close of part 12 of the Dialogues, the whole of natural theology resolves itself into one simple, though somewhat ambiguous, at least undefined proposition. Here we move to italics that the cause or causes of order in the universe probably bear some remote analogy to human intelligence. Probably bear some remote analogy to human intelligence. Does this simply reduce religious belief to a point where it has to vanish altogether, thus requiring that Hume is viewed as a thoroughgoing agnostic? This seems to be nearly but not quite right. The closing remarks of part 12 of the dialogues are neither a volt face nor entirely a concealment of Hume's final position. For one thing, it accords with views that have already been developed in the dialogues and elsewhere. The order, the principle of order of the universe, particularly its organic life forms, is human cysts mysterious and apparently in need of explanation. At any rate, it's not wrong to consider whether there might be an explanation available. The Epicurean hypothesis, which is entertained in the dialogues, is rejected finally by Philo as amongst the most absurd. We know that in animals and human beings, organization is accompanied by intelligence. So it remains a possibility, at least, that something akin to human intelligence is the source of order in the universe. And this we might call God. Is this consistent with characteristic Humean skepticism? Given the qualifications surrounding the claim, I think that it may be. The claim, after all, is at best probabilistic, and it's difficult to attach a particular weight to its likelihood. And Hume here only maintains its possibility. Furthermore, the analogies must be remote, given the inevitable differences between any cosmic mind and those of human beings whose intellects are determined by and directed towards the conditions of physical and social existence. Finally, while intellect appears to offer some possibility for an analogical inference, this cannot be said of other attributes attaching to human life, most notably moral ones. So the residual theism at the end of the dialogues is amoral. The analogy, Philo insists, cannot be transferred with any appearance of probability to the other qualities of the mind. So even if God exists in some remote and inaccessible region of being, we cannot assume that God would have any moral concern with the world. 
The evidence indeed suggests quite otherwise, rather than requiring simply our suspension of judgment. So Hume's final position on natural theology is therefore a nuanced one. True religion reduces to our giving a degree of intellectual assent to the proposition that God exists, although it cannot ever be clear what this entails. This is the only form of worship that Hume will allow. Anything else is superstitious and debasing of our character. The consequence of this is that all practical manifestations of religion are therefore called into question. The God whose probable existence can be conjectured cannot be God as ordinarily understood. Therefore, a rational religious belief will have no possible bearing on human life. To that extent, all real religion is without intellectual foundation. All actual religion, one might say, is without intellectual foundation. And for other reasons which we'll come to, much of it is considered by Hume to be superstitious or fanatical. If this characterization of Hume's theological position is correct, then it might be viewed as belonging at the far end of the spectrum of deist positions that were advocated in the 18th century. Deism is a portmanteau term that refers not so much to a single school of thought, owing allegiance to any single writer or body of literature. Instead, it denotes a range of Enlightenment views that tend to rest upon natural rather than revealed theology. At one end of the spectrum, we have an etiolated version of Christian orthodoxy, as we might find in the moderate clergy of Scotland. But at the other end of the spectrum, shorn of providence, ethics and the afterlife, it shades into scepticism and a practical atheism. This seems to me where Hume more or less ends up in the dialogues. And indeed, it may well have been a settled position that he held over many years. In his recent work, Dan Dennett, an American philosopher, has suggested that Hume would have been bolder in his affirmation of atheism had he received the benefit of reading Darwin. Unable to explain the sources of order in the world, Hume had finally reverted to mystery and an appeal to the limits of human knowledge. But with the later understanding of natural selection and genetic mutation, we can now explain far more in naturalistic ways than Hume realised. Dennett writes, Hume caved in because he just couldn't imagine any other explanation of the origin of the manifest design in nature. The evolutionary revolution had to wait until Charles Darwin saw how to weave an evolutionary hypothesis into an explanatory fabric composed of literally thousands of hard-won and often surprising facts about nature. To an extent, this is a valid comment, and it follows in the tradition of Huxley's commitment to Hume, Darwin confirming and strengthening Hume's agnosticism. Despite the publication of the dialogues concerning natural religion, 
The design argument continued to persuade a succession of early 19th century writers, including Cayley and the authors of the Bridgewater Treatises. Its intuitive force, together with the accumulation of scientific evidence, seemed to make the design hypothesis unassailable to its defenders. By contrast, in the early 19th century, the criticisms of Hume were perceived as playful and ingenious, but in the end slight. These could readily be overcome by counter-argument. But after the publication of Origin of Species in 1859, this gradually changed. The design argument didn't disappear, but it was presented much more cautiously, even as the force was more fully felt of Hume's earlier 18th century criticisms. But whether Darwinism would have led Hume to a more forthright atheism, as Dennett maintains, is somewhat doubtful. One version of the 18th century design, design argument is clearly made redundant by the principle of natural selection, and that is the one predicated upon observation of the matching of species to environment, that camels are equipped for desert conditions and polar bears for the North Pole, is explained very well by Darwin without recourse to the hypothesis of divine providence. And similar comments can be made mutatis mutandis about the evolution of complex organs such as the camera eye. But whether this accounts for all types of cosmic organization is less clear. What about the motions of the planets and the origin of carbon-based life forms? Modern science can give us an account of their origins in terms of Big Bang cosmology, but this too reposes upon there being a universe in the first place. The givenness of cosmic organisation is not something that is readily explained, at any rate not to the point of exhausting all the possible why questions that can be posed. Hume's minimal deism thus remains a valid option, even for a post-Darwinian philosopher. <coughs> Darwin himself, as we know, did not commit to the full force of Huxley's scepticism. He may have lost most of his faith, but it didn't lead him to outright atheism or naturalism. He preferred to leave some questions open even if traditional religious answers had long since ceased to satisfy. So in turning away from religion, Darwin and Hume may actually have ended up closer to one another than either is to Huxley or Dan Dennett. Nevertheless, it's surely right that the practical outcome of the dialogues is that God exercises no moral influence upon us nor we upon God. This entails for Hume that the claims of revealed religion are illusory. Ceremonies, prayers, sacrifices, rituals, sacraments and fasting are either superstitious or fanatical. A binary opposition thus emerges between a philosophical faith in not very much and the actual practices and beliefs of the historical forms of religion. These depend upon particular beliefs about the divine nature and our capacity to influence it. In Hume's mind, superstition appears to be most closely associated 
with a religion of external ceremonies and rituals, perhaps with a medieval Catholicism in mind, whereas enthusiasm is more a typical Protestant phenomenon, often marked by selectivity and intolerance. In the natural history of religion, there's a fuller discussion of the different forms that religion takes, this making it clear why, despite his comprehensive scepticism, Hume has a preference for the pagan religion of ancient Greece and Rome, with its plurality of gods, elaborate myths, and anthropomorphism, this polytheism is more accommodating of diversity and tolerance. Its limited and quasi-human gods are more like fellow actors in a drama. It's a religion that is only skin deep. It focuses on ritual and myth rather than dogma, thus making it less toxic. This ensures that for Hume, pagan religion is more liable to produce virtues such as courage and generosity. By contrast, monotheism is, by his reckoning, more grim and demanding. It leans towards intolerance, violence and the servile virtues. In our increasingly anxious and ingenious efforts to please the Almighty, we are drawn into all manner of irrational creeds and immoral actions. The long footnote quoting Chevalier Ramsey represents, I think, Hume's most sustained and bitter attack upon the religion of Reformed Scotland, including its cornerstone doctrine of double predestination. With all his moderate contemporaries, he shares a horror of the violence of the covenanting period, and this is confirmed by remarks he makes in his History of England. Hume does not appear to have favoured a mitigated scepticism in matters of religion, despite his development of this in other areas of belief and practice. The reasons for this seem to be that religion is avoidable, we can live without it, and that its effects, particularly upon morality, are judged to be harmful. Gaskin argues in his commentary on Hume's philosophy of religion that despite some similarities, religious belief cannot be construed as a natural belief in Hume. It is neither universal nor is its absence practically self-defeating, as, for example, belief in the external world or other minds may be. Although it is a strong impulse, the religious one seems to be secondary rather than primary. Did Hume therefore hope for a society without religion? Does he explore the idea of a secularised society in which religion has disappeared altogether? Could Hume's perspective be embraced by every citizen? These questions may be anachronistic, but on the whole, Hume appears to take a negative view on them. <coughs> his views on superstition and enthusiasm, when combined with his commitment to a naturalist ethic, appear to render a negative verdict upon most historical forms of religious belief and activity. Nevertheless, there are themes in his writing elsewhere which suggest a more nuanced position. Although not arguing for religion as a natural belief, he seems to assume that in practice all societies will be religious in complexion, 
or that religion will be an important element in them, even while this takes diverse forms. In the history of religion, a model of establishment is advanced which shows a preference for an Anglican via media, which resonates with Hume's views in other contexts. A state religion that is released from the worst superstitions of the Middle Ages, which retains many of its ceremonies, clerical orders and sensual forms of worship, and which, after a cooling of the temperature raised by the divisive dogmas of the Reformation, this is able to maintain a lower level of doctrine and a greater degree of social harmony, and it's Hume's preferred model. He appears to believe that this type of Anglicanism is more patient of social harmony and civility when accompanied by state regulation, funding, and a high commitment to religious tolerance. This, at any rate, is his declared preference in the history of England. Was Hume seriously committed to this? Well, it's certainly a position that he argues, as opposed to one that is merely presented. The detail advanced in support of the model, the implied criticism of Scottish Reformed ideals, and the difference from the more disestablished type of church-state relation favoured by Adam Smith, might all suggest that it was indeed Hume's preferred position, rather than another instance of tactical concealment. In other respects, it accords with his historical claim that religion appears to be a feature of all civic life, as well as Hume's general preference for public ceremony and ritual over against highly particular dogmas that will always be contested. Under a sacred canopy of a church regulated and sponsored by the state, religion is most likely to be rendered cohesive and benign in its effects. Doubtless, Hume, as a sceptic, sought only a national church that was moderate, latitudinarian, and undemanding of its citizens. One has the sense that he would prefer the clergymen that populate the pages of Jane Austen's novels <laughs> than some of the historical examples that came down to him from covenanting times. Hume's particular attacks on religion are unsettling and profound precisely because the ground has already been prepared for this in his general philosophy. The three-volume treatise of human nature says very little about God, but precisely in doing so it offers us an account of the natural and social world that has no need of theology. Hume's mitigated scepticism has no role for God, either in terms of its explanatory framework or its practical outworkings. The business of life can be conducted well, perhaps even better, without much reference to the divine. It's for this reason, I think, that the most interesting response to Hume was not George Campbell's reply on miracles, or the later efforts of scholars to rehabilitate the design argument, but instead Thomas Reed's more widespread effort to set philosophy on a different basis. This was surely the most creative and constructive response to Humean scepticism in his contemporary Scotland. The attempt to offer an alternative account of our most deep-seated convictions about knowledge, the nature of the self, the external world, and the objectivity of moral and aesthetic values 
All this showed how much would be required if a satisfactory response to Hume was to be made. Two comments might be made about this approach. First, it shows that if one allows the role of God to be squeezed into a tightly demarcated religious province, then the design argument is unlikely to be wholly persuasive. Unless it's part of a much broader and more cumulative strategy of reasoning about the natural and social world, then the design argument will achieve relatively little. This is true a fortiori in late modernity, when belief in God is no longer the default setting of Western society. Charles Taylor argues in his book, The Secular Age, that this is the most profound difference between the contemporary world and the one that preceded the Enlightenment. For us, faith is now an embattled option, he says, and it requires not simply assent to one argument, but the mustering of a broad set of intellectual and practical commitments. So any response to Hume will have to widen the front of the argument. Second, even if faith can be maintained in a stronger realist setting such as that provided by Reedian philosophy, the effects of Hume's scepticism may still prove significant. For read the ineluctable principles by which our thinking and action are regulated are given for the negotiation of embodied life in the natural and the social world. Our knowledge, however, does not extend much further. At best, Reed thinks we can live wisely in the darkness with just sufficient awareness of God's ways for the practical business of life. The creeds and ceremonies of faith have a practical function. They carry some cognitive commitments, but these are limited in scope and imprecise in what they affirm. This may point to one of the abiding benefits of Hume's scepticism, even for the faithful. The limitations of theological reason may serve the cause of a moral religion, of devotional practice, of tolerance, and ecclesiastical self-criticism. The banishment of God in Hume's philosophy is an urbane achievement with neither dramatic nor tragic nor wistful consequences. And this sets Hume apart from other European thinkers in both theological and philosophical traditions. Claims to revelation are always suspect for Hume and little attention is given in his writings to the figure of Jesus. By contrast with Hume, other forms of agnosticism and atheism have a different tonality in later Western philosophy. But for Hume, the criticism of religion is a quietly therapeutic exercise. It's there for those who are willing to take the trouble. It need not induce existential angst, cosmic despair, or moral nihilism. More redolent of the ancient world, his mitigated scepticism will prevent these from gaining purchase. The lesson of his philosophy, particularly his moral theory, is that one can live and act well without thought of God, even if this is not for the majority. Indeed, he thinks it will be better on balance for us if we are not obstructed or misled by the prejudices of faith, 
We can speculate about the contextual factors that contributed to this. Unlike Boswell, for example, Hume was someone who appeared able to live and to die well without any recourse to religious sentiments, rituals or hopes. His criticism of religion is not that of someone who craves faith but cannot find it or who feels keenly the absence of a rational creed. <coughs> he suffers no religious crisis, it seems, after the swift loss of faith in his adolescence. Another factor may be the religion of his early 18th century upbringing in the Scottish lowlands in the wake of the violence of the covenanting era. The Reformed theology and worship of this period must have appeared very dull to someone entering upon the exciting intellectual world of the early Enlightenment. It would take another 150 years before Scottish church life embarked upon a renewal of its worship, its sacramental practice, preaching, music and church architecture that brought it closer to the Anglicanism seemingly preferred by Hume. Still, Hume does not adopt the emerging moderate position of Francis Hutcheson and many of those clergy who became his later friends and supporters. His indifference to religion and its institutions sets him at a distance from most other thinkers of the Scottish Enlightenment, with the possible exception of Adam Smith. That other great critic of 18th century Presbyterian church life, Robert Burns, was a younger contemporary of Hume. He exposed the hypocrisy of the Uncle Good and generally set his face against the prevailing orthodoxy. But in his case, without it seems abandoning religion altogether, there are more positive religious notes in Burns than there are in Hume. Others have read Hume as a man who was simply ahead of his time. Sandy Stewart pointed out to me that Hume once predicted that it would take about 200 years before his views gained general common purchase. And given that he said that around 1760, that's a very interesting thought, given what's happened since about the 1960s. But then again, Hume would not have wanted us to turn him into a prophet. <laughs> In the writings of the so-called New Atheists today, Hume has come into his own. Richard Dawkins assumes that a cocktail of Hume and Darwin will prove lethal for all forms of religion. The multifaceted attack of Hume on religion is replicated, if intensified, in much of this literature. Dawkins follows many of the standard criticisms of the standard proofs for God's existence, and the citation of the problem of evil bears similarities to parts 10 and 11 of the dialogues. The attack on sacred texts as populated with miracle stories and unedifying tales is also reminiscent of Hume's famous essay on the subject. While the claim of Christopher Hitchens that religion poisons everything in its individual and social effects recalls much of the natural history and other Humean works. Nevertheless, despite their obvious alliances, there may be two related ways in which Hume would have been uneasy around the new atheism. Its confident assertion of the non-existence of God 
might appear to him an overreaching of the power of reason. Much of Hume's criticism is that our experience is too limited to enable us to pronounce confidently over questions surrounding the origin of the universe. Peter Atkins claimed that we should expect science eventually to answer the question why there is something rather than nothing would, I think, have been unlikely to secure the support of Hume. There may be many questions that simply remain incapable of resolution given our human condition. The capacity of science to produce a new metaphysics might therefore have been greeted with a similarly sceptical response. At the same time, the tonality of the new atheists might also have disturbed Hume, particularly its tendency to scoff at religionists as either fools or knaves. Richard Dawkins often writes as if exponents of faith really ought to be creationists, fundamentalists and biblical literalists for the sake of consistency. He is reluctant to enter into conversation with revisionist positions that offer alternative constructions in ways that seek the coexistence of religion and science. Hume's dialogues, by contrast, are a model of interpretation in optimum partum. His opponents, especially Cleanthes, are given a fair and sympathetic hearing. The art of civilised conversation and friendly disagreement is exemplified even when the differences run deep. For that reason, the rhetorical strategies of the new atheists, with their strident and condescending overtones, might have elicited some rebuke from Hume himself, despite the obvious and deep similarities of their positions. Finally, what of Hume's reception amongst later Scottish philosophers and theologians? My impression is that later generations, including scholars who identify broadly with the Kirk, have come to value Hume and have sought to include him in a noble tradition of distinctively Scottish philosophers of religion, Henry Calderwood and James Orr, both products of the United Presbyterian Church, wrote sympathetic studies of Hume in the late 19th century, even if Calderwood sought implausibly to identify the real Hume with Cleanthes. Hume's scepticism has contributed to the refining of faith, thus playing a positive role even in ways that he did not himself directly intend. Norman Kemp Smith, here in Edinburgh, remained a theist of sorts, and he wrote one of the finest studies of Hume's philosophy, seeking to locate him closer to Thomas Reed in his espousal of a philosophical naturalism. Even the divinity faculties of Scotland ensured that the dialogues remained a prescribed text for all honour students. The first teaching assignment I ever undertook was to teach the dialogues to a group of divinity students in Glasgow. Scottish theologians, it seems, took some pride in the view that while Hume may have been a sceptic, he was at least our sceptic, <laughs> and better than any of the others out there. <laughs> For that reason, amongst others, Hume's de Hume deserves to be better known and valued in contemporary Scotland. His criticism of religion should enable even the faithful to think twice 
to realize the danger of believing too much in the wrong things, to remain alert to the follies and prejudices of religion, to be aware of the mobility of theological views across history, and to listen patiently to those who see the world differently in the hope that we might profit from them. As a critic of religion, Hume therefore deserves to be eulogised in his native land, at least as much as Robert Burns. I doubt that we'll ever have Hume suppers, <laughs> though it's an interesting thought, the toast to the immortal memory of the mitigated sceptic. <laughs> I leave that thought with you in closing. Thank you very much. scepticism was necessary, it, it had to go eventually. And, and that would be a reasonable proposition, would it not, that when you use it as a tool to uh, examine, in this case, religion, uh, and to, to, to examine what could be validated. But um, at the end of the day, you would have to adopt a position. Um, so, you know, that's the first point. Do you think that he used it as a tool and uh, but in the dialogue concerning natural religion, I thought I think he did say that even scepticism has to go. So that was uh, the first point. And the other one was um, on the philosophy of the self or the religion of uh, natural religion. Um, again, I think it's from that particular book that he says that uh, um, any true religion that he would find acceptable would be one that was based on the authority of the self. I think I could understand that um, uh, in one respect, um, but his philosophy of the self is not—it's not very clear to me. And I wondered if you—if you would be able to talk about uh, what his view was on the philosophy of the self. I mean, when, he, when he talked about religion being based on the authority of the self, it would be based on perhaps around reason uh, and a reasoned self, and not on the the man-made institutions. Yeah, that, that last point is, is certainly the case, that, that human, and I mean here he's, he's at one really with, with most um, 18th century writers, um, enlightenment writers, in his view that you know, r religion ought to be founded upon reason. Um, and he's critical therefore of, of irrational forms of religion. Um, but he, 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 I mean, he more or less reaches a sceptical conclusion that there is no real lively religion, no relevant religion that can be based upon uh, rational grounds. Uh, and therefore, I think scepticism is, is really his default position on religion. Now, of course, he's sceptical about lots of other things, uh, and he, he comes round to this mitigated scepticism whereby he concedes that although there is not the kind of rationalist justification of the self 
or the external world that had been sought by earlier philosophers. Uh, nevertheless, we, we, we have these beliefs by force of custom and habit, and we, we have to maintain them. Um, so we, we, don't, um, we don't suspend those beliefs, we, we continue to live with them. Um, but religion, I think, is, is different for Hume. He seems to think that you know, we, we can maintain a, a more or less thoroughgoing scepticism, and indeed we can live better by doing so. So the, the, the scepticism is much less mitigated in the case of religion that, than it is in other provinces of belief. So I'm, I'm inclined to think that scepticism is, is really his kind of default position, rather than an, an, an outright atheism or, or anything resembling a, a mitigated scepticism in religion. Um, you may have said this, but I sometimes have difficulty understanding academic language. Where would you put Hume today? Um, on a gradation where maybe Richard Dawkins may be on one end. Um, in his time, he may have been in context at, at one place, but where would he be, his views on religion and skepticism be today? Well, there, there are some philosophers today that describe themselves as on the, 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 the soft or moderate wing of, of atheism or agnosticism. And I, I think probably that's where I would position Hume if, if I had to today. It's, I think it's not the, the militant or aggressive atheism of, of Dawkins for the, the kind of reasons I, I alluded to. But nevertheless, he's, um, you know, he's not far from the, the, the content of that position. Um, so, you know, there are philosophers like, like Thomas Nagel who said you know, the, these questions are still worth talking about um, it's, it's not that um, religious belief is uh, akin to belief in the Loch Ness Monster or fairies at the bottom of the garden there are still some important questions that intelligent people can talk about and, and disagree on even if it's at the end, his own position is is, is that of atheism or scepticism. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I tend to think of, of Hume rather like that than of the the, the more militant atheism that, that simply scoffs and, and dismisses all forms of belief without um, engaging in a serious conversation. Can I ask a follow-up? Yeah. The, the reason I ask is because obviously in his time, um, he might not be able to write as freely on his views about God mm -hmm. as he might have today. But a scholar might look at his writing and say really what he was trying to say was this, but he couldn't say it in the 18th century. That's why I asked and I didn't. Yes. <clears throat> um, I mean, that's possible. It's, it's somewhat anachronistic <clears throat> to say, well, you know, what would Hume be? up to if, if he were around today and clearly he is a man of his time and he's constrained by his circumstances and uh, an alternative reading of Hume is to say that, that really you know this is a position of, of, of outright atheism than kind of minimal um, hazy deism um, I, I think that's a possible construction to place upon Hume it's, 
it's not the one that I have tended in the end to lean towards, but um, you know there are philosophers like Simon Blackburn in Cambridge has, has taken that view that um, you know Hume, with the benefit of Darwin and subsequent uh, scientific history, w would be far more militant in his views than than he was for obvious reasons in the dialogues and elsewhere. Yeah, I, I think that's an uh, interesting question. Um, he's, you, you get dramatic atheists like Nietzsche. You, you get angry atheists like Bertrand Russell. You get wistful, nostalgic agnostics like Matthew Arnold, Thomas Hardy, later Pulliam. Uh, Hume seems to me not to fit any of these categories. It, it's a kind of urbane, low-key atheism. Um, he, he's not haunted by the outcomes of, of scepticism. Um, he doesn't look back nostalgically to earlier periods of theological certainty. Um, he's not, I think, a, a crusading atheist. I mean, he's a very sharp critic of religion. But um, there seems to me something that, that's kind of laid back about uh, Hume's religious scepticism that sets him apart from these other forms of atheist or, or sceptical writing that you find particularly in, in the 19th and 20th centuries. Susan, yeah. Can I put um, a slightly contrary position, just for the sake of argument, that Hume is a sceptic but not an atheist, uh, that atheism is a belief position, mm -hmm. that is, it's a belief that there is no God, mm -hmm. um, and I would put Dawkins there, if you yes. like. uh, that's, a, that's mm -hmm. a position of faith actually. Mm -hmm. um, the position of scepticism is much more that we can't actually know the ultimate transcendent truth, it's a, it's a suspended awareness of there is a question here but to mm -hmm. say there is or there is not a God is to leap in a direction one way or another that actually most of Hume's writing is concerned to, to avoid um, that he's thinking about um, identity for example or the, the things you talked about custom and habit are all really about thinking that the, the further we pursue these questions rationally, the more we realise that we don't actually have an external standard by which to make an absolute judgement about them. Therefore, in, in a sense, all our judgments are based on belief or faith. Um, and it's that capacity of Hume in his writing to 
suspend that final step, if you like, that certainly I, I find attractive, but it would also, to me, put him, and then on the, the question of <laughs> where on the spectrum, I'd put him nearer the Archbishop of Canterbury than I would uh, <laughs> Richard Dawkins, actually, in the sense that it's a, it's a way of thinking about life that says we actually, in the end, human beings only have access to certain things about reality. Uh, we might learn more about natural processes, but there are always questions that human reasoning just isn't equipped to answer. So, um, just yes. Um, I, mean, I think that's correct. Um, you know, human, the stress is the limitations of reason. So to, to that extent, we, we don't know enough to pronounce confidently um, about you know, whether there are any hidden principles of order and organization in the cosmos. So he's, he's skeptic, skeptical rather than atheist in, in, in the line he takes. And I suppose in terms of the, 18th, the, the kind of 18th century lexicon, these terms are, are not yes, really discreet. Um, atheist is just a term of abuse in many cases for someone who isn't a, an orthodox believer. Um, and it's only, I think, with Huxley that the word agnostic is, uh, is invented um, as a term. Um, but if one can make that distinction between agnosticism and atheism, then Hume is, is an agnostic rather than an atheist. Um, I, I suppose my, my only gloss on that would be that Hume is, is, in a sense, a practical atheist in the way in which the Archbishop of Canterbury yes. clearly isn't. Just goes the other way, I thought. For the Archbishop of Canterbury, although it, it's, it's all kind of mysterious beyond a certain point, um, religion still has an important yes. function um, to, to exercise in human life, whereas for Hume it doesn't. Um, but uh, I, I think if one can make that distinction between atheism and scepticism, then Hume is, is a sceptic rather than an atheist. Yeah. We've got time for the two quick ones. Or <laughs> um, <coughs> you make the Archbishop of Canterbury sound much more interesting. Than that. <laughs> 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 uh, explain his position a little bit more <laughs> in relation to you. Well, <laughs> That's a good question. I don't think he's all that keen on Hume actually. He prefers um, much hazier continental and thinkers and uh, people that sound much more obscure. That's my um, <laughs> personal view. Um, but I, I, I mean, the, the, there is a, a theological tradition that stresses the via negativa, the negative way that. Um, all our thought about God is, is, is thought that at best points in a particular direction, but in the end it has to be qualified and negated in ways that render it um, fundamentally mysterious and um, unknowable in, in terms of the, the object of what is known, the content of knowledge. So there are traditions, particularly in Christian mysticism, in, in which theism sort of turns round in a, in a loop into a, a kind of agnosticism and confession about the unknowability of God. So I guess you're mm. adverting to that, which 
know, in, in Rowan Williams is a very strong theme, particularly because of his background in, in um, Russian theology. Um, it's interesting that somebody pointed out that Richard Dawkins, after Richard Dawkins wrote The God Delusion, the Archbishop of Canterbury's response was to write a book on Dostoevsky. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I, I think the Archbishop of Canterbury, you know, one, one of the differences would be that religion has, has this practical function. It's, as Wittgenstein says, it's like a, a box of tools which you, you use for the practical business of living. And I, I think he would like the, the idea of, of Walterstorff interpreting Thomas Reed that the, the most that religion can do for us is to enable us to live wisely in the darkness. Um, I think M M Murray's theology is very elusive. It's difficult to know exactly what he thought about God, but where they are different again is that M Murray thinks that religion has an, an important social function um, in, in binding people together in community. Um, that's the, the real purpose of religion. It, it's, it's cohesive function. So ritual is much more important than doctrine for McMurray. So McMurray might be fairly relaxed about Hume's intellectual skepticism, but would insist upon the um, much more positive practical function of faith communities. I, I guess that would be roughly where McMurray would take it as a latter-day Quaker. Well, thank you very much, David. I think that was the perfect hour in the middle of the day. <laughs> Thoughtful, wide-ranging, scholarly and entertaining as well. So um, thank you all very much for attending and we'll look forward to seeing many of you in the in future weeks in, in this series. But thank you once again. This production